If you would uh, turn with me this morning to the 103rd Psalm, Psalm 103, we'll be reading it together in just a moment. Um, it's good to be among you. I have known of Desert Springs since my days as senior pastor at El Camino Baptist Church in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, we actually had one of your members as part of El Camino for a while. Um, uh, Bruce and Debbie Ferg, I think some of you will know Bruce and Debbie, and uh, we left El Camino. We've been in California for 19 years and then escaped California recently, um, which Arizonans appreciate, and uh, we returned here, and I'm one of the pastors at Rincon Mountain uh, serving there, and uh, we love Tucson. Uh, never thought we would return to Tucson, but in God's good purposes, we're here, and it's good to be among you, having known of you since at least 1987, when I first met Bruce and Debbie, and they were part of El Camino for a while. We're going to be in Psalm 103 this morning, so I'd like to read that text to you, uh, if you would follow along as I read. It's a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you today that you have given us in this psalm your very word through David. And as you gave it by your Spirit, we pray that by your Spirit you would open our minds to understand, and not merely to understand, but to embrace and believe and receive 
this as your word to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I begin today, I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, How do you define yourself? Or another way to ask that is, is what do you allow to define who you are, to define your life? Uh, We live in a time when identity is a big deal. Uh, Everybody's writing books about identity. Um, We've had self-identity, identity politics. The question everyone's trying to answer today is, who am I? How do I identify myself? How do I define myself? And we see that people define themselves by their sex, by their race, by their education, by their family. We find that we are tempted to define ourselves by our high moments or our low moments. We say things like, I'm a man who ruined my marriage, and that becomes the definition of who we are, or I failed as a parent, and that's who I am, or I've been the best salesman in the company for the last 10 years, and that's my identity, or we just generalize, I'm a loser. We identify ourselves with what we experience and with what we do. Uh, Some people define themselves by their ideology or their politics or their devotion. They're they're a a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat or a loyal Republican or a Wildcat fan or whatever it may be. We define ourselves, and it comes out in conversation. It always shows up in a conversation, but mostly it shows up in how we think, what dominates our thought. Well, Psalm 103 is a psalm about how we define our lives. And I I find it to be a very significant psalm because it's a psalm about how David defined himself, what David's identity was. Written by King David, one of the great kings of Israel, but it's it's very important, it's a very valuable psalm for us because David's life was a life full of all kinds of possibilities for how he would define himself. He had a He had a very diverse life. We have, next to Jesus, we have more information about King David than any other figure in the Bible. And David's life was full of many defining moments that could have been how he thought of himself. So every kid knows the story of David and Goliath. David could have spent his whole life saying, I am the man that killed Goliath with a slingshot. Uh, We know the story of David as a story of the shepherd who became a king of the greatest empire of his day. He, He could have said, I am the king of the greatest empire of my day. I was once a shepherd. Now I'm a king. That could have been his identity. He was a man of immense wealth. Uh, He was famous in the world in which he lived. He was like a LeBron James of his day. He was was well-known. Everybody knew who David was. He was an elite warrior. He was a Navy SEAL. He he killed by himself hundreds, so much so that God called him a man of blood. He was an accomplished warrior. He was a man that experienced great suffering. He was despised by his own brothers. He was a refugee living in the caves of Judea for seven years while King Saul hunted for him to kill him. He became king of a divided kingdom, and for seven years his enemies sought to destroy him. 
He had friends so loyal they died for him, and he had friends so stupid they caused him endless headaches. Then there were his sins. These could define him. He betrayed his most loyal friend, Uriah, by stealing his wife, committing adultery, and then arranging for the murder of Uriah. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a betrayer. His sin led to his own son turning against him and turning the nation into a civil war for the throne. Very diverse life. Any of those could define David. He could say, I'm the adulterer. I'm the disloyal. I'm the great king. I'm the shepherd boy that killed the giant. He could define himself by any of those. Very diverse life, highs and lows. But how does David define himself? This psalm says it four times. It uses a word for God's faithful love. You find it in verse 4, a steadfast love. You find it in verse 8, his steadfast love. It's a very important word. It's about God's loyal love, God's covenant love, God's promise love. And what David says is this, when I look at my life, all my highs, all my lows, all my successes, all my sins, all my suffering, all the wrongs done by me, all the wrongs done to me, I define my life by the fact that the the true and the living God set his love upon me, sealed it with promises and with blood, and I am his. That's what David says in this psalm. No matter what David has done, no matter what has been done to him, no matter what his experiences have been, his foundational identity is that he has been loved by God. And that's true for you as well. As we begin 2017, your foundational identity is that you have been loved by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ. So this psalm talks about this in three ways. It talks about God's faithful love in me. It talks about God's faithful love in us. And it talks about God's faithful love and death. And we're going to look at each of those as we walk through the psalm. So verses 1 to 5, God's faithful love, God's loyal love, and me. The psalm begins with self-talk. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. David's talking to himself. He's calling himself to not forget. He's calling himself to remember certain things and not dwell on other things. That It happens in the psalm. He's, the psalms are filled with self-talk. My soul, think about this. He's taking himself in his hands, and he's speaking, speaking to himself. Uh, Paul Tripp says, there's, there's no one we listen to more than ourselves, which is true. Who do you, who do you, what's the predominant voice in your head? You're talking to yourself all the time. You look in the mirror in the morning, and you say, oh, what happened? You accomplish something good, and you say, I'm pretty good. I wish everybody knew that. You do something bad, and you say, that was really bad. I hope nobody saw that. We're endlessly talking, endlessly comparing, commending ourselves, condemning ourselves. And David's saying, when I talk to myself, this is what I say. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and don't forget. Remember the benefits of God, his faithful love. 
Now, when you think about David's life, that's interesting what he calls himself to remember. The diverse tapestry of David's life calls for a man to discipline himself to not forget the faithful love of God, given all that was part of his life. And what does he remember? He makes a list. And, and I, would, I would say the way to look at this list practically is he makes a list of things that could define him, and then he trumps them all. And that, I'm sorry, that word has changed its use today. Um, just taking a really good analogy and kind of messed it up for certain people. Um, he, he talks about things that could define him, and then he says, no, there's something greater that defines me. He makes a list of things that could define him. His iniquities, his diseases, his suffering, his shame, and his weariness. Now notice, he, he, he talks about his iniquity. He says, who forgives all your iniquity. David's sin could have defined him. The adulterer, the murderer, the man who abused his power, the man who committed great and public sin, that could have defined him. His diseases, his weakness, uh, the, the, the modern word is his brokenness. David knew himself to be a man of twisted body and soul. That could have defined him. David's suffering, the pit he talks about in verse 4. The pit is the place of suffering. David knew real suffering. Fourteen years of being chased by hitmen trying to take his life out. Real suffering. He could have said that defines him. Family problems. A son that raped his stepsister. That could define him. His shame, the opposite of being crowned as shame. That could have defined him. If you read the Psalms, they're filled with David's awareness of being humiliated. Being slandered and maligned and shamed publicly. Shame is a huge question in David's life. Or he could talk about his weariness. He's, he's simply worn out by everything. But David says, no, what defines me is the God who in faithful love forgives all my iniquity and heals all my diseases and redeems me from all my suffering and honors me, crowns me with his steadfast love and mercy to answer the shame that men bring and so satisfies me with good that my youth is renewed like the eagle." So there are things that could have defined David. There were loud voices from his past, just as there can be loud voices from your past and my past. Sin, suffering, shame, weariness, the things that preoccupy us. But David says, they do not define us. They do not define me. What defines me is the faithful love of God who forgives and heals and rescues and honors and renews. David chooses to push all of those other things out of his life and let the faithful love of God drown them out in his own understanding of who he is. He finds identity not in anything he has done or anything done to him, but in what God has done for him in his faithful love. Not looking inward, but looking outward. Not looking backward, but looking upward. That's how he defines the faithful love of God to him, to 
David. So no matter what you and I have done or what has been done to us, our foundational identity is that we have been loved by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So question, application, what about you? What defines you today? What do you tell yourself? What is the, what's the feedback loop in your head? What do you say again and again and again to yourself? If you've been through great suffering, or you've sinned in a way that has brought public shame, then you've got a feedback loop. You say again and again, oh, I've done this, I've done that, this has been done to me. I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I'm ashamed. I've been wronged. Does your past sin define you? Does your suffering define you? Does your weakness define you? Does the shame that's been brought on you by others define you? Does your weariness define you? David says, no, and none of these things define us. What defines us is the faithful love of God. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us because ever since the serpent slandered God in the Garden of Eden, ever since he questioned God's goodness, when he came to Eve and said, oh, God's holding back on you. You know, he, he hasn't told you everything. He really has a bad motive for telling you not to eat, and he's got something better, but he's not giving it to you, so you really can't trust him because he's not good. Ever since then, we've bought the lie. We, we doubt God's goodness. We harbor a suspicion about God. So to convince ourselves of the faithful love of God takes, bless the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget all his benefits. Because the inclination of my heart is to... Be suspicious of God's motives and God's love. But to think that we've worn out his patience. But Christian, to to quote one of my favorite writers from England, here's what you need to know. If you're in Christ today, God is tirelessly on your side. No matter what you do, he is never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. So as you come into 2017, brothers and sisters, you can wake every morning and say, I am loved by God. And you can go to bed every night, no matter what you've done that day or what you've experienced, and say, I am God's beloved through Christ. That's how David relates the faithful love of God to himself as an individual or how it relates to you and me as individuals. But we aren't just individuals, are we? We're part of the church. We're part of God's people. And if you read the blogs, if you check out the books that are being written, you will find that there's an endless stream about the poor condition of the church. There's there's a... There's good money to be made by lamenting the state of the church. And people are ashamed of the church. I had had a relative over Christmas say, how is it possible that 85% of the evangelicals voted for Donald Trump? He's ashamed of the church. I'm not making a comment about that particular issue. I'm just saying people can be ashamed of the church. We are part of the church. The church defines us. So how does God relate to the church, to the people of God? 
Well, beginning in verse 6, David talks not about himself, but about the people of God. Verses 6 to 80, he takes us back to God's delivering of his people from Egypt when they were under oppression, and the Lord worked righteousness and justice for them. He, he says in verse 7, he made, made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel, and then he quotes from Exodus 34 in verse 8, the Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The context of that quote is very important. You, you might remember God made a covenant with his people. The elders went up and ratified it, had a meal in the presence of God. Moses went up on the mount to get the pattern of the tabernacle, and while he was up there for 40 days, the people got a little weary of waiting. Where's Moses? Where's God? We don't know what's going on. Aaron, make us an idol. So they made an idol, and they had a, they had a, a pagan celebration of this false god. And God said to Moses, the people have gone after idols. Go down. And Moses went down, broke the tablets of stone, brought judgment on the people. God said, I'm not going up with them. Moses pled with God to go up with his people. God said, I will forgive them. And then he said, this is who I am, Moses, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So when David is quoting verse 8, he's well aware that what God is saying is this. When it comes to my people and their hard-heartedness and stubbornness and waywardness and tendency to idolatry, what, what defines them is not their sin, but my faithfulness. They are my people, and I will be merciful and gracious to them, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Not minimizing the reality of sin, but David's thinking back to how God deals not with individuals, individuals, but with his people. And when it comes to his people, God is all of those things to them as a whole, even when they sin. He elaborates on that beginning in verse 9. He, he gives a series of verses, which for many Christians are some of our favorite verses in the Bible. What sort of a God is it who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love? Well, David says, let me put it to you differently. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. What does that mean? Well, chiding is a form of shaming. It's a form of pointing out sin. It's what a mom and a dad does. Um, it's rebuking. It's irritated as it should be. God, God does not take pleasure in our sin. He is offended by our sin. But though he chides, he doesn't keep his anger forever. That's the sort of God he is. Verse 10, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And that's so wonderful. Verse 11 as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. He, he's speaking here to our tendency to magnify our sin and our suffering and to let it control the landscape of the life of the church. And he's saying God's love is greater than that. See, it's, it's easy to look on the church and, and see all the flaws and all the sins and all the failings of the people of God and let that fill the horizon of how you see the church. But if God's love is higher than the heavens, what fills the horizon is the mountain of God's love. Not our sins, not our failures, not our weakness. 
One of the things that's wonderful about living in Tucson is those mountains. And they sort of dwarf all the minor variations that go on here in the valley. Well, God's love is like that. He's, his love for his people is like that. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Here, here's what David is saying. Have you ever looked at the sin that's part of the life of the church and the weakness and the frailty that's part of the life of the church and let that define it? David is saying here, God removes it so far from you, you can't even see it. Verse 13 and 14, it's not our weakness that defines us as God's people. It's the compassion of God to us in our weakness. I've, I've, I've always loved those verses. I loved them more when I had children. Because when you're a mom and a dad and you see the weakness of your children, and yes, they do irritate you in their weakness, but in your saner moments when you see them in their weakness, you have compassion on them. You realize they can't do it. They're not able to do it. They haven't reached the ability to do it. And God is that way towards us. He has compassion for us. He knows that we are dust. So the question for us is, how do you and I as members of particular churches define ourselves as a church? Do we despair of our weakness and sins? Or are we confident in the faithful love of God to us? This is, this is just such incredibly good news for God's people in particular churches. That, yes, there is sin present, but God does not nag us. Yes, yes, God is, is not pleased with our sins, but he doesn't live in his displeasure. He forgives. That, yes, we fail and sin, but God doesn't give us what we deserve. That, yes, our sins are great, but God's faithful love dwarfs our sins. Yes, we sin, but God removes our sin from us so that we are not defined by it. And, yes, we are weak, but God is kind and compassionate to us in our weakness. So David says to himself at this point in the Psalms, My life, my identity is not shaped by my sin or my suffering. It is shaped by the faithful love of God to me. And David says as he looks about at being part of the people of God of Israel in his day, of the church in our day, our life is not shaped by our sin, by our weakness, by our suffering, but by the slow to anger, faithful love of God, which is as vast as the heavens. So question, how can this be? Sounds, sounds like I'm minimizing sin, doesn't it? Sounds like David's minimizing sin. Almost sounds too good to be true. Well, that's why it's called the gospel. It's good news. Now, I, I don't want to give the impression that God simply loves us and excuses our sins. That's, that's not what David is saying, and that's not what the Bible says. No, no, the love of God in Scripture is a love that removes our sin by sacrifice, that restores relationship by a peace offering, and that peace offering is the death of the Son of God. Now, God's, God's love is great because he provides a means of forgiveness and purification that answers everything about his holiness. But because he has done that, he has expressed his love to us, we are fully acceptable and righteous in God's eyes. 
That is the center of our life as Christians and our life as a church. And I think especially important in these days in our country when there's immense division, not just in the secular world, but in the church. Recent experience of this in the gathering at Christmas. There are, there are people who are afraid of the new powers that will come in in Washington in a few weeks, and there are people boastful of it. And neither is appropriate for God's people. We boast in Christ crucified. And our confidence is in a faithful God to his people no matter what happens. No matter what we have done, no matter what has been done to you, your foundational identity is that you have been loved by God in Christ, our Savior. God's loyal love in me, in you. God's loyal love in us, the church. But what about the generations to come? Uh, I've reached a stage in life where there's more life behind me than ahead of me. You begin to look at life differently, and you begin to ask different questions, don't you? You begin to wonder about the future generations and what life will be like for my four grandchildren present and two more to come. What will life be like for them in 30 years, 40 years? What will they endure? What will they face? You begin to fear for the future. Wonder about the uncertainty of the future and what will happen to your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And David anticipates that as well. Verse 15, he talks about the briefness of our life. His, our days are like grass. We flourish like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it. It's gone. Its place knows it no more. Our lives are br brief and death is certain. But, says David, but, says David, in the face of our certain death, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children. How do I view the future? Looking, looking ahead to what God may have for my children and grandchildren in the years ahead, this is how I view the future. I may die, but the steadfast love of the Lord will remain the same. That if Jesus does not return in a hundred years, I will know that the steadfast love of the Lord will be present for my great-grandchildren. And in 200 years, for my great-great-great-grandchildren. Because he never changes. So I need not fear the future. And how do I know that's certain? Because of verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. The day that God steps down from the throne is the day I need to worry about whether his love will endure. And since that will never happen, I need not be afraid. Generation after generation, to my children and my children's children, God will continue to show his faithful love, and their lives will be defined by his faithful love as much as mine is. There you have it. God's faithful love defines the life of David personally. Not his sin, not his failure, not his suffering. God's faithful love defines the life of his people, not their foolishness and weakness and straying from his ways. And God's faithful love defines future generations because he sits on the throne 
and his promises and love remain the same. I've been watching Facebook posts the last week or so, and there are posts that say 2016 was the worst year ever. Um, and while I, I love history, I want to react to that and say, yeah, but what about 1939? And what about, you know, that's not the point. Um, and, and I read others that say 2016 was the year where hope began. Both of them are misguided because they're defined by the wrong things. You can look back on 2016, maybe it was a year of great loss for you. I have friends who lost loved ones to death this year. We have another friend whose husband walked out on her in 2016. We know people who face personal tragedy or have sinned in a way that has brought great harm to others. How do you define your life? How should they define your life? <laughs> what will you spend time reviewing in your thoughts as you look back? What will you spend time anticipating into 2017 as you look ahead and might be tempted to worry? David, whose life was full of suffering and victories, scandalous sin and hateful enemies, says that what he says to himself is, my soul, don't forget the faithful love of God, a love that provided a sacrifice to satisfy God's justice and secure my salvation. Now, there's one exception, a large exception. Who, for whom is that not true? Do you know the only people for whom that is not true? Strange as it may seem, the people for whom that is not true is people who refuse to admit they need that kind of love from God. God's love is fully revealed in his gift of love for a world of sinners, us. Here is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus came for sinners. He invited them to a feast of God's love poured out when Jesus died for our sin. And everyone who knew they had sinned were broken by their sin, responded to his invitation, and came to know the love of God for them. And the only people that didn't were people who thought they were just fine. They didn't need that Savior, and they certainly didn't need God's love. But my question, if that's you today, is this. If God is that good, if his love is that great, if it's a love that would never abandon you once you are his, and if that God knows you inside and out, knows everything you've ever done in secret as well as in public, and if he has loved you and given his son to bear your sin, and if he, being that kind of a God, invites you to come as you are, no cleaning up in advance, come as you are for forgiveness and cleansing, why would you refuse? Why would you say, I'm not interested? when the arms of, of God the Almighty's love in Christ are open wide to you. So I invite you today, come to him through Christ. Believe on his son. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you. Thank you that um, we can sit here today, everyone who is in Christ, and say, yes, your love has remained the same. 
And I pray, Lord, that today each of us, as we look back on the previous year, as we look ahead, would call to mind your benefits and press into our hearts reflections on your faithful love and not allow our sin or our suffering or the wrongs we have done or the wrongs that have been done to us to drown out the great truth of your faithful love to us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that your love defines us, shapes us, rules us, controls us. And we thank you that you've shown us that love through your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.